You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Tech moves fast. So keep pace with the Daily Crunch podcast from TechCrunch. With new episodes every day, this podcast will give you a quick overview on everything you need and should know about startups, new tech, regulations, and more. Listen to TechCrunch Daily Crunch now, wherever you get your podcasts. That's TechCrunch Daily Crunch, wherever you get your podcasts. I vividly remember the first time I experienced virtual reality because I did it without first taking Dramamine. So I'm going to put this on your head here. I'm tightening it around the back and on the front. Don't squeeze the brain too much. There's so little of it left. And I want you to look down and you see that plank there? You you don't want me to walk this, do you? Uh, It's up to you what you want to do. Oh, I'll walk this plank. You know, it'll be a first for me. Oh, nearly fell. Wait a minute, this is scary. Okay. This is really, really scary. Okay, so I'm holding my My first VR experience was realistic, it was scary, and it was fun. So, of course, I went back for more. I'm Seth Shostak. I'm Molly Bentley. Welcome to Big Picture Science, produced at the SETI Institute, where researchers investigate the nature and origin of life. On Big Picture Science, we give you the wide-angle view on science and technology. Virtual reality technology has come a long way in the five years since Seth walked a virtual plank. No longer limited to gaming culture or to generating adrenaline thrills, Researchers say VR is becoming a powerful tool to strengthen personal connection and community. In this episode, Seth returns to the VR lab for an experience designed to create empathy. But can virtual reality make us better people? Also, the dark side of VR. And if your brain is already a virtual reality machine honed by evolution, could all reality be virtual? This episode, We Are VR. This, they say, is how it starts, what gets you hooked, what creates a crack in your emotional attachment to reality. This is Peter Rubin, and my official title is Platforms Editor at Wired. You step into the virtual world and experience something called presence. I was in one room in my apartment, and I was using Spaces. Spaces is Facebook's kind of first version of a social virtual reality space. I pulled up a video screen and I sent a video messenger call to my wife. She was on the couch in the living room. She got the call on her iPad. And so the video screen that I saw in VR that was kind of suspended in space, I saw a video feed of my wife. On her iPad, she saw my avatar. So we had a quick conversation and I was talking to her and because I had my hand controllers in my hand, I was kind of moving my hands around and I walked outside. She said, it was unbelievable. I really knew that I was talking to you because not only did it look kind of like you because I was able to design my avatar to look like me based on my Facebook photos, but she said, you move like you, your head moved like you and you were using your hands the way you use your hands. She felt as though she had had a conversation with the real me. It's not clear what is more surreal about the future of VR, that having a personal avatar will be considered normal or developing an emotional attachment to someone else's. But Peter Rubin's realistic avatar reflects what he says is the future of virtual reality, a space for personal connection and intimacy. And perhaps it's not what we imagine if we've seen a science fiction film like Ready Player One, where avatars are limited only by your imagination. People come to the Oasis for all the things they can do, but they stay because of all the things they can be. 
The movie is set in the year 2045, when the world is on the brink of collapse. People escape to their VR headsets for consolation, choosing avatars that are mostly fantasy. Hulk-like muscles, ninja fighting skills, or even the decrepit corpse-like bodies of zombies. These movie avatars are in a prolonged battle of good versus evil, with all the smash-em-up car chases, explosions, and fire-breathing dragons of a thrilling VR game. Ready Player One was a great book, and it's a fun movie, says Peter Rubin, but virtual reality is no longer limited to action-adventure thrills. It's not that it's inaccurate. It's that a view of virtual reality that's based solely on Ready Player One is just going to be, I think, myopic in a way that's detriment to the cultural acceptance of VR. It, it's so much broader, and it's so much more intrinsically this is a strange word to say, but good. There are so many kind of wonderful pro-social applications that to come out of it thinking that VR is a place I can just realize my fantasies and be a superhero who beats the bad guys and gets to the treasure is just a completely retrograde interpretation. Yes, he used the word good with virtual reality. It could be a place to overcome shyness and distance, strengthen our relationships with others, and become happier as a result. Peter Rubin is the author of Future Presence, How Virtual Reality is Changing Human Connection, Intimacy, and the Limits of Ordinary Life. There's a phenomenon in, in the virtual reality community slash industry called presence. And while it was adapted from telepresence, which we all know if we've worked remotely uh, or spoken with someone through Skype or FaceTime, Presence in the VR sense means that your brain buys in. Presence means that your reflexes and responses are in keeping not with the real world environment that you're in, but with the virtual environment that you're in. Describe for us your most, I would say, emotionally attached or visceral moment in virtual reality. Can you share with us an experience that you've had? A good example, and this is kind of a variation on a first experience with presence that a lot of people have had, is I was in a VR experience that was based on Philip Petit's walk between the two towers of the World Trade Center in the 70s. So I'm standing on the edge of one building, and I see the tightrope. I see the line stretched out ahead of me to the next building. And in the real world, someone had stretched a cable across the floor. So when I put my foot down on the rope... I would feel the rope and I wouldn't necessarily feel the carpet that was on either side of the rope. So even the kind of real world tactile cues weren't doing anything to remind me rationally that I wasn't where my virtual environment was telling me I was. Did you walk the rope? So I walked the rope. Oh, and goodness. and and when I tell you that it's difficult to take that first step, let alone the second and third, when they bring wind into the mix and there are these kind of outside of VR the bells and whistles, some people call them 4D, and they're gimmicky. But when they're done right, they pile on the presence and they give you these real-world tactile sensations that, that go beyond what you can get in VR. And it makes for a state of almost total paralysis. You're speaking with someone who has um, experiences vertigo up in buildings that are more than like five flights. Did you Did you feel that? I did not. It's not to say that vertigo wouldn't kick in if you stood on the edge of a building in VR, but it, that is to say that the, some of the common culprits of what's called simulator sickness have been to a large degree solved. These are things that are due to kind of technical issues like latency, which is the lag between when you move your head and when the world that you see catches up with your head movements. That has been not completely done away with, but minimized to below 20 milliseconds, which is kind of this magic threshold for it to be indistinguishable for you. Now, you talk about the concept of presence, and how is that different from something you describe in the book, the conversion moment? What is that? The conversion book? moment is what happens when, in virtual reality, people accept their virtual surroundings as real. They click over to saying, well, this is where I am. So the rational brain turns off and you no longer are aware that you're wearing a headset and you're participating in the simulation? It's not that you're not aware you're wearing a headset and it's not that you're not aware it's a simulation, but the reactions and your internal calculus is, is governed by the virtual surroundings, not the real world that you're standing in. Well, let's talk about where the technology is for that to happen. So to have this immersive experience, maybe that's another word that you use, the virtual world needs to be more than a simulation of the real world visually. 
right? You that's, also have that's to right. feel something and you have to feel that other people are there. I mean, there's you sitting here in the studio with me, I can feel your presence. How? Because we're 15 feet apart. So what are you that's, feeling? That's a great question. Um, I feel, okay, I see you looking at me. I can see you moving and maybe reacting. And I just feel that there's a body in the room with me. I'm failing this question, aren't I? Well, if we were in virtual reality right now and we both had a headset on and we were 50 miles apart and I was sitting at a desk and you were sitting at a desk, in the headset, you would look to your right and you would see me and you would also see me moving my hands the way I'm moving my hands in real life. If I lift my hand to my face, if I gesture, you would see that. Okay. We would look at each other and we would be making eye contact right now. But when you came to the studio, I shook your hand. So I did touch you physically. That's correct. Yeah. You did touch me physically. But right now you feel like there's an energy here and there's a body here. And we could, in virtual reality, you know, haptic, which is kind of touch-based feedback, things like shaking your hand, that's not close to approximating real life. But we could high five. We could fist bump. We could have these kind of early fumbling gestures at these social interactions like shaking hands, and we're lacking the warmth of skin and things like that. Those are years away. But as those get improved, we're talking about getting to a scenario where it's, for all intents and purposes, indistinguishable. Right now, what you and I are doing right now in the studio, this is completely doable in VR in a way that you would feel my presence and I would feel yours because we would be looking at each other and we would be making eye contact. And within a year's time, I would see when you blink and I would see when your eyes flick off to the left or you look over my shoulder at something, that coming into VR as well through uh, gaze tracking sensors. And so all the nonverbal cues and our physical mannerisms, these are already in VR in multi-user experiences. So maybe the question is, what is the laundry list of items you need to duplicate reality. It sounds like we have some of them. Peter, what are we missing? Well, du I'm, I'm not entirely sure if duplication is the is the end goal here, right? Okay. Because Simulate. there will always be things. Simulation. So what we have now are headsets that are tracked in space, which means that we can move around. I could lean towards this microphone and the microphone will get closer to me. Uh, I can move around. I can spin in my chair. I can take in my entire 360-degree surroundings. Audio is similarly spatialized, which means that if you were to take a few steps closer to me, the way I hear your voice would be in keeping with that. If you were to cross over to the other side, I would feel it more in my right ear. If you were to lean closer, those audio cues would be there as well. So you have the visual field is rendered pretty faithfully. The audio cues are rendered faithfully. Haptics is lagging behind, but they're certainly, like I said, they're rudimentary gestures. So through hand controllers uh, that are armed with motors and capacitors, you can have your hand gestures translated in VR. I can flash you thumbs up. I can flash you a peace sign. I can wave at you. And more importantly, what my hands are doing in space is tracked, just like what my head is doing in space is tracked. So I was going to ask this question a little bit later, but what you've just said prompts me to ask it now. And I, I don't really know how to phrase this other than it feels like our attraction to virtual reality and, and what you said here is really a referendum on reality itself. And I wonder if in some way reality has disappointed us, that we feel like reality is not enough, that it's let us down. And so we're going to recreate reality in a way that is more pleasing to us. I don't think that's the case at all. We already live our lives having conversations and experiences with people who are across the city or state or country or world. We're very used to our communications with people through whatever online channel we choose, be it a FaceTime call or a Skype video call or a chat room or a text thread. We're very used to speaking with people who aren't with us. What makes that better is when we are speaking with people who aren't with us, but they're actually with us because we're, we're in a virtual space together. This is not a referendum on reality. The fear around the referendum on reality would come from if people just wanted to be in a virtual version of their bedroom and not see other people. But what I'm talking about is the ability to experience the same decentralized or remote communications that we've had with people since the advent of the internet, but doing it in an embodied and more robust, more intimate, and more memorable way. The memories that we have when we come out of a virtual experience with somebody else aren't that I sat in my room and I talked to you and you were sitting in your room. I come out of it and we talk later and say, remember when we hung out together 
in Alaska and the Aurora Borealis was overhead, you remember how amazing that looked? Or remember when we hung out at a panda zoo? No, we didn't go to China together, but we got together in a 360-degree environment and we spent time together and it was really you and it was really me. Just because we were doing it in virtual reality in no way detracts from the quality of the time we spent together. Well, this sounds amazing. This technology sounds amazing. I'm, I'm flabbergasted actually at what it can do. Why do we need it? It's easy to ask why we need anything, uh, why we needed the Internet. The Internet brought so many improvements to so many people's lives, but we were doing just fine sending mail and uh, traveling to see each other and uh, having delays in, in all our communications. And, and well, that's not a... The, but there are some things you could say we don't need to make a case for why we need better medical care or vaccinations or housing. So maybe the case does need to be made why we need virtual reality, a simulated reality. And one way to be really close to someone is go sit next to them on a couch or just physically be close to them. That's absolutely right. That's not always an attainable thing. Mm -hmm. uh, but even before we get to social interactions, what I would say was what virtual reality allows us to do on a strictly professional slash humanitarian level is to visualize virtual objects in a way that they are really there. And, and the medical applications of this go well beyond the theoretical. I mean, you've had a pediatric surgeon attribute his success in a cardiac procedure on an infant to the fact that he was able to use a 3D model of the infant's heart in VR in a way that he wouldn't be able to on a 2D monitor and realize exactly what he needed to do, give him a dry run of this tricky procedure he wanted to do. VR is a training tool. VR is a therapeutic tool. These things hinge on being able to immerse people in a situation again and again and again. That's all on the necessity side. Social interactions occupy an entirely different category, and I completely understand why someone would be skeptical of that. But what I would say to you is we long hailed the Internet as an institution or a phenomenon that would allow people to connect with communities that they are unable to connect with in real life, whether those are subcultures, whether it's someone who feels alienated in their small town, maybe it's a sexuality or a gender issue, maybe it's as pedestrian as a hobby. Much like the internet allowed for community there, virtual reality allows for not just communities in that kind of conventional regard, but it gives people who suffer from social anxieties a way to connect with other people that is more fully fleshed because it's embodied, because you are physically embodied as an avatar, to experience physical proximity, to experience closeness, to experience things that have always been granted to us as far as through mediated digital means at a remove. That remove has fallen away. And so if you're talking about why do we need it, we need it so everybody can experience what we all take for granted. Peter Rubin is an editor at Wired, and his book is Future Presence, How Virtual Reality is Changing Human Connection, Intimacy, and the Limits of Ordinary Life. Peter, thank you so much for being with us today in the physical world, although perhaps our next interview will be in the virtual one. Next time in VR, Molly. Coming up, I venture into virtual reality for the second time and find out whether VR can not only make us happier, but more empathetic. It's We Are VR on Big Picture Science. With Wired Science, you can geek out all you want. It's a podcast for anyone obsessed with math, science, space, biology, or technology. And it provides in-depth coverage on current news and discoveries. From strange diseases that turn your tongue fuzzy to tech that'll help crops grow from space. New episodes are released nearly every day, and they're typically under 10 minutes, so you can easily make them a part of your daily routine. Listen in the morning while you're getting ready or during lunch while you check NASA's astronomy picture of the day. Check out Wired Science now wherever you get your podcasts. That's Wired Science wherever you get your podcasts. Journalist Peter Rubin explained the concept of presence in virtual reality. Well, I've reached presence. It was during my 
pirate days of yore at ye olde Stanford Virtual Human Interaction Lab. Rather, it was a day of yore in 2013 when Professor of Communication at Stanford and Director of the Lab, Jeremy Balinson, asked me to walk the plank. Avast. Uh, take a step backward then. All right. And I want you to look down and you see that plank there? I do. What I see is what looks like a 10-inch wide wooden plank. It looks like it might be pine One of the easiest ways for someone to experience what presence is is when you're standing on the edge of a building or you're asked to walk across a plank. Take a step forward toward it. Okay. Oh, nearly fell. Wait a minute. This is scary. Okay. This is really, really scary. All right. Now, Cody, hit the boom. Not so good because this giant pit opened up all around the plank. And the person who is putting you through this experience says, lift up your foot and take a step forward. Of course, your rational brain is going to know that if you pick up your foot and you take a step forward in real life, your foot's just going to land on the same carpet or floor that you're standing on. But everything else is telling you not to take that step. What I want you to do, just step into that void. Want me to step off this plank into this pit? That's what I want you to do. All right, I'll, I'll do it, but only because, ah, ah, bam. I'm at the bottom of the pit. Very good. No very snakes. Good, very good. No snakes. Like hey, that's pretty impressive, way, Jeremy. So you were very brave, and uh, we applaud you for doing that. Very yeah. good job. It was five years ago that Seth walked the virtual plank. That's right. Well, that, that experience became a constant preoccupation, a kind of a plank constant. Jeremy Billinson said that since then, VR technology has become more affordable and its application has matured. It can be used to address complex social problems because virtual reality provides a unique visceral experience of being in someone else's shoes, says Dr. Balinson. And his study suggests that virtual reality can build empathy and influence behavior in the real world. He's outlined the results of his studies in a book. Experience on Demand, what virtual reality is, how it works, and what it can do. Seth returned to Stanford to take Dr. Balinson's latest VR experience called Becoming Homeless. Jeremy, good to be back here. Seth, it's so great to have you back. I've got fond memories of standing in our lobby five years ago, having a really neat conversation with you, so welcome. So it's been a number of years, as you mentioned, Jeremy, since uh, I did this. How has the technology changed since then? What's changed is actually not so much the quality of the experience. So when you were here, the goggles cost $40,000. Now they cost a couple hundred dollars. But they were still as good back then in terms of the overall feeling presence. What's changed is the scale. There's millions of these goggles out there as opposed to hundreds when you came here the last time. And so what I'm seeing sociologically is the companies are shifting a bit away from games. Now they still have their video game divisions, but they're starting to have more divisions based on education and about VR for good and other use cases that are outside of entertainment. Now I'm going to be putting on one of these VR headsets. It looks like something from a science fiction movie. Jeremy's getting one off the wall. What you're about to do is probably the most studied piece of VR content and perhaps in history. Fernanda Herrera, who's a PhD student in the lab, has been studying this for years. We have got thousands and thousands of data points of people who have gone through this experience. The question we're asking is, can a virtual reality experience reverse what's known as the fundamental attribution error? Coined by Lee Ross, a Stanford psychologist decades ago, the fundamental attribution error states that when something bad happens to you, Seth, I blame your character. When something bad happens to me, I blame the situation. And all of us do this. We blame you know, people for their mistakes and we blame the situations for our own. How do you reverse this heuristic that people tend to do, this bias? And so this experience is about becoming homeless. It's free to download in a variety of places, for example, on Steam. And it's designed to show that for some people, the journey to becoming homeless isn't about who they are, but it's about situational factors. So you're gonna sit down and you're gonna experience this change from having a home to losing one Put these on, please. All right. You see these guys? I see these guys. I'll just grab those. All right. He's handed me a couple of uh, controllers you'd have in a video game or something. So the virtual reality has begun, and I'm sitting in what looks like either my house or an office. And uh, I guess it's a house because it's got a sofa. It's got a few books and a bookshelf. There are things on the desk that are important. An eviction notice. Notice to vacate. Listen. I know you're having trouble making rent. I understand you're in a difficult situation, but I need someone that can pay. And if you can't, then you need to vacate. I'm being told to vacate, so I suppose I didn't have the money to pay the rent. While you look for a new place, you decide to sell objects in your apartment to make money for rent. 
You have enough time before eviction to sell six items in your apartment. Choose the items now. Okay, I'm going to choose an item. What am I going to choose? I'm going to I choose that uh, picture of a flower on the walls. So that's gone. Please All right. choose an item. All right, I'm going to choose a uh, bunch of books over there. Well, there's a laptop here. There goes my laptop. Hey, you owe me way more than this. I'm sorry, but you're, you're going to have to leave. Uh-oh. Somebody came to the door and kicked me out. The title of my book is called Experience on Demand. And the reason I came up with that title is that the smart way to think about VR, in my opinion, is to treat it as an actual experience. It's not a media experience in, in the sense of how the brain responds. The brain has not yet evolved to understand that this isn't real. I'm sitting in my car, and my car seems to be in some sort of neighborhood with walls on the either side, a kind of depressing place. Oh, here come the police. They don't want me parking here. This is bad. This is bad. This is also not too much fun. I've got a bunch of cleaning supplies, a roll of toilet paper, some paper cups and so forth in the car. The car's all kind of messy. There's stuff on the floor. After receiving multiple citations, you sold your car to pay the fines and avoid jail time. Luckily, you were able to apply for a free pass that allows you to ride public transit at night for shelter and warmth. I'm in a night bus and it's moving slowly through the empty streets of some city. I've also been told to watch out for the guy behind me. He may come after my backpack. You know, I don't miss the possessions because I didn't have time to build up a, a particular attachment to them. But the thing that does strike me is that suddenly my life is completely changed. You don't have any place to go home to. It's like those anxiety dreams that I occasionally have. In our research, what we show is that this experience that you have in VR tends to change behavior and attitudes in the real world. So in this experiment, what we do is we test to see after you take the goggles off, if you're willing to sign a petition that says, I am willing to have my personal taxes increased to support affordable housing. And we measure the probability of you signing based on whether you had this experience or a control condition, for example, doing imagination and role playing, which tends to be the way that we do perspective taking and empathy training, or whether you do the same experience, but you do it on a computer as opposed to in VR. And what our data demonstrate is that when you have this experience, when it happens to you in virtual reality, you're more likely to sign the petition compared to many control conditions. But maybe they're only doing that because you're in the room asking them or they just had the experience. And of course, they're going to agree with whatever you're suggesting because it's kind of a virtual agreement in the sense that you're not taking the money out of their wallets. I mean, isn't there a bias there? Absolutely. With every social science experiment, there's something called demand characteristics, which is the subjects could just be doing what they think you want them to do. Uh, in our study, though, we took the goggles off and we handed them a physical petition to actually sign with their signature. So the stakes were slightly higher than just, you know, nodding your head inside of a simulation. So, but the point is well taken. And, and in general, when you run studies, one of the reasons Fernanda wanted to look eight weeks afterwards is to see how long these effects extended. Your intention here is not simply just to give me the benefit of feeling what it would be like if I were homeless, but to actually address the problem. Now, how many people are going to be able to see this? How does that actually work in practice? I mean, you could have field trips to actual homeless shelters for a lot of people. I don't know how many, how many would sign up, but I don't know how many would sign up for this. Virtual reality is good for things that if you did them in the physical world, it would be expensive, dangerous, impossible, or maybe even counterproductive. With people who are homeless, it's, it's you know, all of us, how dare us, and myself included, I'm judging me, walk by people without homes constantly with money in our wallets. We do it all the time. I do it all the time. Would it be fantastic if to learn more about a problem, all of us went to the source of that problem? It would be, but it realistically, some of us don't have time to do that. Some of us are afraid to do that, and it's just not something that we do. What virtual reality does is make it more available, but also what you can do in virtual reality is create a narrative that's crafted to really show something. So this was, you know, the final final scene of becoming homeless, you do meet homeless people and hear their stories. The first three scenes, though, when you're in the apartment and you have to sell your items and then you're sitting in that cramped car and, and the police officer roused you and it's really intense in that space. And then the next scene where you can't relax on the bus because that guy's behind you and it's, your bag keeps going away. It's all designed to show you this very carefully crafted narrative about the experience. And you could get that in the real world, but probably would take many, many, many hours to get there in terms of finding the perfect person to talk to at the perfect time. Jeremy Bailinson, thanks so much for uh, showing me around here. It's a pleasure and I'll see you in five years.
Jeremy Balenson is a professor of communication at Stanford University, and he is the director of its Virtual Human Interaction Lab. He is also the author of Experience on Demand, What Virtual Reality Is, How It Works, and What It Can Do. He has two additional VR experiences, by the way, one that provides underwater witness to the effect of climate change on coral reefs, and a collaboration with Columbia University called A Thousand Cut Journey that explores racism by putting the user in the shoes of a black man at different stages in his life. So Seth, your most recent virtual reality experience made you homeless. You were evicted from your apartment. Did that have a lasting effect on you? Well, it did, actually. You know, I, I still think about being on the night bus crawling its way across the city. It was a very disturbing experience. What part of it was realistic? Well, it wasn't the visuals. The visuals were good, but they weren't, you know, photorealistic visuals. And it wasn't the sound effects. They were okay, but they were, you know, kind of low-level sound effects. It wasn't that it replicated reality in any of those senses. It just felt real, perhaps because I could look around and look at different parts of the bus, whatever. I don't know what it was, but it appealed to a part of my brain that took it as somehow being a real experience. So it's clear that virtual reality is offering more than gaming thrills, but of course the technology is still new enough that long-term effects haven't been studied sufficiently. This fact reminded us of our interview with MIT psychologist Sherry Turkle back in 2011. At the time, Dr. Turkle was reassessing her optimism that social media platforms would build connection. She was looking at Facebook and cell phones, but her perspective remains relevant as we enter a new age of virtual reality. Here is an excerpt from our conversation. There was something I didn't see in the mid-90s. I imagined that this identity experimentation would take place at a computer, and then you would get up from your computer and you would live your life, and then you would sit back down at your computer and enter a virtual world and have kind of more of these exciting online experiences, and that this would be very enhancing to your life in the real, and that these multiple ways of experimenting with the self would be life-enhancing. And what I didn't see is that we would have our devices on us, basically 24-7, because people are sleeping with their phones and texting in the middle of the night and going onto Facebook in the middle of the night, and that they would give us the possibility of sort of bailing out from the life we are in at any moment when things get tough, when things get difficult, and being in this other life, this virtual life, whenever we felt like it. You write that young people keep themselves at a distance from their feelings, which is something you could argue that young people do anyway, a a teenager does anyway, trying to get in touch with his or her feelings because everything's so new. Why attribute this to digital media? And can you give me a specific example in the way that young people, I, I keep saying young people, but let's say anyone, controls their emotions or doesn't have the full range of human emotions because they're either online or on their cell phone or texting or whatever it may be. I talk about technological affordances and human vulnerability. In other words, we are vulnerable to wanting certain things. And the truth is, is that we are vulnerable to wanting to avoid our feelings. And we have developed a technology that allows us to hide. I'll give you a perfect example is the difference between an apology and typing out, I'm sorry, and hitting the send key. So an apology, I have to look at you and say, I'm sorry, and see in your eyes that I've hurt you. And I have to stand there and really experience that I've hurt you. And I have to be able to say, is there anything I can do to help? Whereas in a typical scenario with Facebook, kids just will type out, I'm sorry, and hit send, and that's it. They're done. And when they do that, they're not developing the capacity for empathy, for really experiencing someone else's feelings and allowing that relationship to potentially heal. An excerpt from our interview with MIT psychologist Sherry Turkle in 2011. Coming up, the dark side of VR and what happens when VR gets even weirder, plus a philosophical conundrum. What if you're already living a simulation created by your brain? It's We Are VR on Big Picture Science.
A lot happens every day. Cut through some of the noise by listening to What's New with Wired, a podcast that provides in-depth coverage on technology and culture. With new episodes released every weekday, you can catch up on all the major events you missed. From AI developments to business updates to new scientific theories, it helps you make sense of what's happening in the world. Plus, each episode is usually pretty short. You can easily squeeze it in on your way to work or during a lunch break. So stay updated with the award-winning journalism from Wired. Listen to What's New with Wired wherever you get your podcasts. That's What's New with Wired wherever you get your podcasts. We've heard about how virtual reality, once a novelty and a thing for gamers, has a future in which it could shape our real-world interactions, maybe helping us develop more empathy or having a wider experience of the world or with other people. But as the technology is refined, there could be unintended consequences, including a possible dark side. Wired editor Peter Rubin returns with a few scenarios that might give you pause. What we're seeing now is avatars are people. That that's going to change as AI gets stronger, and that's going to give rise to a host of other issues. But what we're wait, already what's seeing. What's the alternative? I have to ask. If right now avatars are people, what's the alternative? That an avatar doesn't have a person at the other end. That an avatar is bodied and piloted by AI. So by artificial intelligence. By artificial intelligence. So there's not a person on the other end. So what we think of as bots now, what we think of as chatbots or Siri or uh, virtual assistants or what have you, those become embodied in virtual reality. So it's an avatar and you can talk to it. But there will come a point years down the road where a multi-user social world will be a combination of human piloted avatars being you and me and the avatars that we choose for ourselves using VR and AI as well. And they'll need to be designated as such because of all the other attendant issues that can crop up. You know, people will be authenticated as real. AI will be authenticated as AI. And increasingly, the experiences that we have will need to be authenticated as real or not. Well, are you willing to go to the dark side? I'm I'm already going to the dark side. It's, okay. I think it's incredibly important that we that we talk about what could be coming out. Okay, us. take us to the dark side of virtual reality. And I certainly am optimistic in the long run, but that hinges on getting out in front of what I see as being some absolute nightmare scenarios that that could well occur, and some already are. One of those is harassment and toxic behavior. We know what happens online. You know, whether it's sending someone a vile image as a direct message in a tweet or screaming racial slurs at someone in multiplayer gaming or being cruel to someone in the comments of their Instagram photo, we know what abuse can do and we know how hellish it can make life for people. You bring that into VR where avatars are embodied and personal space exists, it's not just a troll a thousand miles away screaming in your headset or sending you something incredibly mean-spirited and hateful as a direct message. It's them walking up to you, and it's them sticking out their hands and groping you. The viscerality of what harassment is in VR is is exponentially greater than, than what it is on the internet. So every multi-user social VR platform is building user empowerment tools and user safety tools. But what also needs to happen is design practices that disincentivize that kind of behavior and incentivize good behavior. And that kind of work is just beginning, but it's absolutely crucial in these early days when there aren't millions of people using these devices. Peter Rubin is an editor at Wired. Computer engineer Carolina Cruz Neira doesn't see us necessarily being isolated in the virtual world. She suggests that more often than not, we will ditch the headsets and use new technology to blend the virtual world and augmented reality, that is, the real world augmented by computer-generated information. Dr. Cruz Neira is director of the Emerging Analytics Center at the University of Arkansas, Little Rock, and a newly elected member of the National Academy of Engineering for her contributions to immersive visualization. Molly spoke to her in what's quickly becoming the old-fashioned way in person. I want you to make the case for virtual reality for me because I live in an area where there's a lot of public transportation and whenever I get on a bus or a subway, everyone is looking down at their phones. And I'm just wondering what it might do for society if people are even further removed from reality, the physical reality. They all have virtual headsets on and they're not present. 
So my vision of virtual reality is to be a technology that is not put on us like a helmet, but it's actually technology that is embedded in the environment. So for example, I can be on the subway with you and we are maybe looking at the news. Well, my virtual reality, I could just have the news somehow floating in front of both you and me so we both can share that. Or the Star Wars thing, you know, something comes 3D in front of us and maybe we see the president talking to us right in front of us. To me, that's the vision for virtual reality is to help us to go back to be social and human because our reality is enhanced around us, not isolating us. So it sounds like I have an outdated notion of what virtual reality is in that I've seen the pictures of the people wearing the helmets <laughs> that go right across <laughs> you know the upper half of their faces and I assume that people would be running around with those face masks on. Well, I wouldn't say that you have an old or antiquated vision. I think you have the vision that the media is describing because that's what's commercially more visible. That's what it has become, in a sense, very exciting in the last four or five years. I personally, and I have been saying this since I was very young in the early 90s, I do not envision a scenario where we're having dinner as a family, mom, dad, the kids, maybe grandma and grandpa are with us in the dinner. I don't envision a scenario where we all stand up from the dinner table, sit down in the living room, and we stick helmets on each one of our heads. No, no, what I, I vision, that. I know what I vision is that we're all eating dinner and we all have our helmets on and one person is eating dinner in France and another person is down in Texas and someone is somewhere else. But you're saying that's that's not what you see happening? I don't envision that. I mean, I do envision something that, again, the space, our dining room, our living room, will create the illusion that we are in maybe in Paris or in Texas or in Timbuktu. I mean, we are, for example, right now developing in my group a technology that when multiple people look at the same screen, they see different things. So it's the same screen but you might be looking at a tour of Paris and I might be looking at a safari in Africa and somebody else might be climbing the Everest. But we are all looking at the same screen. And how does that support your theory that this is going to be used for enhancing our social interaction? Well, because now I'm coming back to the old ways where I was dialing a phone and I was talking to somebody on the phone, you know, in a different manner. You know, I can say just, can I take a minute? Can you come with me? Because I'm just seeing the most gorgeous giraffes running around or something. So you can hold on on your Everest climbing and then come and join me in Africa. But I will see your face, you see my face, we see each other, we're pointing together, and we are having a very direct social interaction. And then at the end of that, you might say, you know, this is super cool, but I was almost, almost getting to the tip of the Everest. So can you come with me and see what it looks like? And then I'll be, okay, well, I'm going to hold my safari right here and I'm going to go. Something of that nature. And it's not to say that helmets are like bad. I mean, helmets are good. And, and for certain applications, it would be a very good way to get us engaged and interacting with each other. But in some other situations, we still need to be our physical selves within the virtual reality and that's to me the big issue that we are by default in a sense removing our physical self when we talk about virtual reality and we become something else we become nothing because most of the times you put your helmet and there is nobody there is nothing it's just your this sort of ethereal being floating in the virtual space or you become something else because you get some cartoonist looking avatar that obviously is not you and again in some applications that is acceptable that is fine that is okay it's not a problem but it's not for all of them that's my issue well Carolina Cruz Neira it's very nice to talk to you in person and perhaps in the future we will have a virtual reality discussion thank you for being with us okay thank you Carolina Cruz Neira is the director of the Emerging Analytics Center at the University of Arkansas, Little Rock. 
Well, it sounds like there will be lots of flavors of virtual reality, straight up, with or without a headset, with or without augmented reality or artificial intelligence. It sounds futuristic and, well, personally, I find it a bit scary, like walking the plank. But maybe I shouldn't because, well, perhaps we're already living in a simulated world. Your brain, honed by evolution, uses the information collected from your senses to create, inside your head, a model of reality. So we leave you with a few final mind-blowing thoughts about what's real and what's virtual from Thomas Metzinger, a philosopher of mind and cognitive science at Johannes Gutenberg University of Mainz, Germany. We spoke to him via a non-virtual platform, Skype. Well, what we call reality in everyday life is just phenomenal reality. It's the conscious model of reality that our brain constructs with three spatial dimensions and time running uh, in one direction and time flowing in one direction. And you ask any physicist and they tell you that reality is completely different. There are no colors. There are no colored objects in the world. In front of your eyes, there are only wavelength mixtures. What you perceive are colored objects, which are simulations that run in your own brain. It's an internal phenomenon. The interesting thing is, of course, after one has understood, and many more people will now understand this, that ordinary conscious experience is a very good biologically evolved virtual reality. One can, of course, ask fancy questions about, well, maybe I don't have a body at all. Philosophers would that call body skepticism. And one can ask, so what is the hardware on which all of this is running? Do I know this? Uh, in the first place. And the idea that it's a computer is just a very crude version. There are much cooler versions. Maybe you are a thought uh, in the mind of God, you know. Um, maybe we are all simulations running on some hardware or in some system that we really don't understand. The best that we have is intersubjectivity Inter the best that we have is intersubjective verification. There's many of us, we work on scientific theories together, we falsify them, and that working together, that creates an intersubjective reality. But as I've written in a last paper, I can imagine a society of avatars that have created social hallucinations in each other. Think of a super intelligence in the future that thinks, okay, these animals that created me, they think they are selves. So the best way to talk to them is with person models. I'll send avatars there that talk with them and calm them down. And then suddenly you have thousands of avatars that are actually interfaces used by artificial intelligence systems. And they have learned how to create an other mind's illusion in human beings, how to make us think there's really somebody there. But then the next thing happens, these avatars cause other mind's illusions in each other. And then a virtual society would emerge in virtual reality with non-biological creatures. You would have a virtual kind of intersubjectivity and maybe, you know, our own world is a little bit like this now. You know, most of us have a strong intuition that what we do in the real world matters more and matters in a different way than what we might do in a virtual one. Um, is the real world, I mean, this is, of course, a judgment call, but that's what philosophy is about, I suppose. I mean, is the real world actually more important in the virtual world? Well, with this situation in which everybody can enjoy virtual reality 24 hours a day, maybe they don't do anything to improve the real world. Well, the question is, what would minimize the overall amount of suffering in the universe? That would be good. And virtual reality certainly is a consciousness technology, and maybe we can develop very clever new ways of alleviating human suffering of having wonderful, positive new states in, uh, in consciousness. But the danger is, of course, um, that we neglect the real world. And through neglecting the old-fashioned, physical, biological world, we indirectly create a lot of suffering. A related question is, um, 
should the same ethical rules apply in VR as in everyday life? In today's, you know, shooter games, you can kill people for fun. Uh, they don't apply. But maybe in that immersive format, we should apply the same rules as in everyday life because it might psychologically change the self-model in our own biological brain. It might make us more brutal afterwards. By the way, that problem has been thought about by Christian philosophers like St. Augustine in the Middle Ages. The question is, can you only sin in the outer world or can you also sin by having sinful thought? And uh, they thought that if you desire your neighbor's wife, uh, but only mentally, this is already in itself sinful. And um, VR is something like, it's not only a neurotechnology, it's really a consciousness technology, a mind technology. And uh, I think you must be very careful of unexpected feedback effects. Thomas Metzinger, thank you very much for speaking to us, if indeed it was you speaking to us. Thanks for having me. Great pleasure. Thomas Metzinger is a philosopher of mind and cognitive science at Johannes Gutenberg University of Mainz, Germany. Well, thanks to the team who virtually make the studio their reality to produce Big Picture Science, senior producer Gary Niederhoff and operations manager Barbara Vance. Thanks also to financial support from Rena Shulsky-David and Sammy David and to the William K. Bose Jr. Foundation. Big Picture Science is produced at the SETI Institute, a nonprofit scientific and education organization whose scientists study the origin and nature of life. And a big thanks also to our listeners. You've been listening to an episode of Big Picture Science called We Are VR. And if you'd like to hear more Big Picture Science episodes for real, well, you'll find them in our archive at bigpicturescience.org. You can also find links there to our guests. And if you're a podcast listener but prefer listening to over-the-air radio because you mistakenly feel more confident that it's real, check out the listing on our website of the more than 140 radio stations that carry the program. And if your local radio station is not on that list, well, consider letting them know you like this show. If you never want to miss an episode of Big Picture Science, consider subscribing to Buy Pi Sci on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, and iHeartRadio. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter, and to reach us directly with your comments, throw in some barely discernible praise, and then email it all to bigpicturescience at seti.org. 